0: Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakapenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market.
1: Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Earnings season is nearly over, but everyone is talking about inflation. The latest monthly CPI reading came in lower than expected, and the market reacted well. But is this warranted? And what's the bond market telling us? Yes, inflation is cooling, but they at the expense of households. The US consumers running down their savings in the amount Aussie households are putting into offset accounts is at multi-year lows. We we'll then look at two big Aussie stocks, Harvey Norman and Brambles, are both overvalued. Finally, we turn to the energy transition and its costs. Greg explains the importance of a vital concept, energy return on investment, and why it's so important for civilization. A low energy return on investment is a low standard of living. Hello, and welcome back to the 15th episode now of What's Not Priced In. As always, I'm Kirill, and with me is the esteemed Greg Canavan. Greg, how are you? Good, Kirill. How are you, mate? Not bad, thanks. Not bad. It's good. Well, we've got a pretty, uh, pretty nice episode for you today, and I think, I hope humbly that every episode is a good episode um but today we've got inflation data coming out we've got discussion on interest rates and i think uh, a very interesting discussion that greg will have about the energy transition and maybe the costs that the market is maybe not pricing in but um i think maybe we can start with the latest inflation data that came out from the abs the monthly indicator uh i think uh Inflation did fall more than expected, which was good good news. I think um, the CPI fell to 4.9% in the 12 months to July, down from 5.4% in June. That's great news. I think maybe less good news was obviously core inflation, which excluded volatile items like fuel and vegetables and fruit. was down a bit less. It fell from 6.1% to 5.8%. So core inflation is definitely still elevated, still a little bit sticky, but definitely it does seem that uh, we are winning maybe the battle with inflation. And I think um, I'm a tennis fan. I think you're also a tennis fan. Absolutely. And, uh, the the U.S. Open is on, so maybe we can have a tennis analogy. So, you know, are central banks up in upper break in the fifth set in the battle with inflation.
0: Uh, maybe, uh, let's say third set. I don't know if we're quite close to. Wow. Okay. So that's okay. We'll see this, this goes back to the, the higher for longer argument that we've been talking about for some time in that I certainly think, uh, inflation is coming down and, uh, I don't think it was ever going to be as, as, uh, uh, persistent as a lot of people thought. Mm -hmm. And if you look at where, inflation peaked uh, at the end of last year, it has come down significantly. And, And as we've spoken about previously, that was mostly due to the supply shock. And then we had a huge increase in demand because the government put so much money in people's pockets. You had a big increase in demand. You had a big reduction of supply. Of course, that's going to mean a huge price surge. So we're coming on the down the other side of that um, line now and, uh, you know, third or fourth set maybe. Maybe it's two sets to one. Okay. Uh, probably not quite in the fifth set yet. Um, but, yeah, there's been some good tennis. I'm, I'm marvelling at how good Djokovic is at yes. the age of 36. The yeah. precision of his hitting, um, he is, you know, he'll probably go down as... The greatest of all time. And then you've got the young, the young Carrez, gun coming up yeah. who is absolutely insane for his age. So really looking forward to those guys. I don't know if you saw the Cincinnati final a couple of weeks ago between yep. those two, which I was, was following it live, yeah. <laughs> probably one of the most intense games of tennis I have ever seen. And for people that don't really follow tennis, um, I came late to it in life. I grew up playing rugby league which is just a bit of a meathead team sport (laughs) where um, you just you know you try to build each other whereas tennis is a physically demanding sport as well as nearly 80 percent mental Mm -hmm. and if you have two players that are equally as proficient at their shots as equally as fit as each other the person with the mental strength will win easily And it is just such a uh, a fascinating sport to watch when you understand Mm -hmm. that mental side of it. And my daughter's been playing for uh, nearly 10 years now. She's only 14, but she's been playing since she's four. And a lot of the stuff that I, I can't really help it with too much tennis stuff, but I help yeah. it with a lot of the the mental stuff. And yeah. there is a big parallel with financial markets and the way that you need to uh, be be mentally strong when you're getting signals from mm-hmm. one part of the market telling you one thing, but you know you need to re- resist that and react against that. So a um, bit of a diversion to what we we're just talking about, but um <laughs> Yeah, I can I can talk about the parallels between tennis and markets, uh, you know, for, for quite some time. So it is it is an apt, uh, definitely an apt metaphor, and I think it's why tennis is such a globally popular mm. sport because it, it it just speaks to everyone, and and people that really get into it uh, just find themselves quite addicted to the. Uh, to the battle. And when you see good battles out there, which yeah. at Alcaraz and our uh, uh, Djokovic match at Cincinnati it was an epic battle. Um yeah, it's just compelling, compelling watching. So um but where were we? We were talking about uh inflation, uh you're right inflation,
1: interest rates, yep. Yeah. What well, what's the, the, the market, market react- thinking? Yeah,
0: The market reacted pretty positively to that to that number. So even though there are indications that inflation is coming back down mm-hmm. uh, and that's taking the pressure off the RBA and you know whatever the Fed Reserve to to continue raising rates, you're still you're still going to have rates higher for, higher for longer because mm-hmm. inflation is a lagging indicator. So even though we are seeing the signs of weakening demand now, you're not going to see that necessarily flow through to the inflation figures for yep. for you know a number of um, more months and, and potentially not until the till the end of the year. And if you just look at uh, say for example the electricity prices that came through in that CPI. We had a um, a 6% jump in July alone, and it would have been nearly 20% jump in July alone without the rebates. Now, I know that that's a a resetting of prices as as each year, these prices do get reset. But Mm. it just goes to show there are a lot of structural things coming into play now with inflation that we need to keep in the back of our mind. And that speaks to the idea that We're not going back to those really, really low interest rates uh, previously. And I think the next thing I'm looking for is to see uh, as the economy continues to slow, as the money runs out for for consumers and belts are tightened further, you're going to see, I think, bond yields rally. You're going Mm -hmm. to see inflation continue to fall on the back of that weakening demand. But it will probably... Uh, trough at a at a higher level than what it has in the past. So so this is where you're sort of starting to get that idea of structural inflation, not necessarily being high like it was in the mm-hmm. 70s, but just being higher than what we've previously been used to under the, the QE environment and under the near zero interest rates that we had for much of the, the past decade. So um, I think that's going to play out. And I'll just quickly, uh, we can quickly have a look at some of those charts just to show you what i uh what i mean when it comes Mm. to that so if we look at um, this was the chart i mentioned last week so uh in last week's episode for anyone who missed it we discussed the fact that there was a uh, an article from the san francisco uh, fed they put out and um, by their estimates the u.s consumer will have run down its excess Mm -hmm. savings uh, i think they said by the end of this quarter so by the end of september Uh, So so we're looking at a a, a relatively short period away from, uh, you know, all all that excess spending from the pandemic and from all the money that the government uh, put into the economy that will be run down by the end of this month. And then I mentioned that this similar thing was happening in Mm -hmm. Australia. And this is a chart that the RBA put in their latest, I think it was the statement on monetary policy, goes only to the end of June. So it's a quarterly sort of update. Mm -hmm. But Um, As you can see, this is uh, redraw and offset accounts, Mm -hmm. the extra money that has gone into these. And clearly uh, around the COVID times where people had a lot of additional money uh, going into their accounts, that all went into offsets and and redraw accounts Mm -hmm. and looked quite healthy. But as you can see here, it has really dropped quite sharply. And now you're getting to a point where uh, the share of disposable income going into offset accounts and redraw accounts Mm -hmm is below 1%, and the last time that happened was back in 2018, 19, and I'm pretty sure back then that was when uh, you know the Fed had to stop raising rates and had to cut rates, uh, and the Aussie economy was slowing um, yeah. or, or quite quite weak as well. So th- this is a sign you, you would imagine that this would continue to fall in the next couple of quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just an indication that uh, yes, it is, continuing to be tough out there and we've got a few stocks we'll look at in a minute in relation Mm -hmm. to the the health of the consumer uh and if we just look at so this is a a bond fund uh it's one of the bond funds that i've recommended to my subscribers but it is just a bit of a proxy for uh, fixed income markets and you can see that it's been in this very long sort of basing pattern over the past um best part of a year And 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 throughout this time people have been very bearish on bonds and even up until quite recently uh, when when bond yields broke higher again there was a lot of negative commentary around uh, bonds and fixed interest mm. but if you look at this chart it actually looks quite constructive you've had this sort of really uh, decent low put in here we had a move higher then another correction back down and we're looking like we're we're basing and trying to form a, a higher, low around this level so it is starting to pick up again and that's just an indication i'll just get rid of this rsi so you can see it a bit better uh it's an indication that you know perhaps we have seen the lows for bonds uh, and they are starting to move higher Um, i think one of the things that you probably just need to consider and and maybe the market is being a little too optimistic is that on those inflation numbers when they came in better than expected market put in a big rally now that was probably a bit of short covering maybe some people were positioned differently for the release but it goes to that sort of uh almost knee-jerk reaction that lower bond yields mean lower discount rates which is good for asset values Mm -hmm. and that can continue for a little while but i think at some point the market says oh hang on bond yields are going down because inflation is slowing because the economy is slowing And that's not good for earnings. And um, and at that point, you sort of get to a situation where you think, okay, well, um, you know, falling bond yields are not necessarily compatible with rising equity prices as mm-hmm. well in a, in a slowing environment. And if we just look at the the tips here, uh, these are the uh, inflation adjusted uh, bond prices, so they're effectively a, a reflection of the real real interest rates. Um, and, and at their lows, it's an, it's an inverse. So at the lows of, of tips, it means we're up towards the highs for uh, real bond yields. So we're still looking quite quite high um, in terms of real bond yields, which means they're sort of restrictive uh, in, in the US. We have seen a little bit of an uptick here in the past couple of weeks, and that's coincided with, um, coincided with the rally in bonds. It's also coincided with a rally in the gold price. So as you can see, the gold price has corrected lower here over the past couple of months. It's made lower lows here and lower highs. So really you want to see this rally take it to a, a new high above this level just to sort of get a bit more comfortable that mm-hmm. the correction is over. Uh, alternatively, you might see another uh, little correction here and you know, you'd know want to see that, that low hold. So with... Um, gold it sort of rallied briefly just because of the the brief rally in mm-hmm. the real yields um, but let's you know i think it's a little bit too early to to talk about uh, whether that might have might have bottomed but certainly it's sort of looking reasonably good that you're seeing gold supported here cuz it fits that argument that the economy is slowing bond yields are coming off mm-hmm. uh, real yields uh, are coming off a little bit as well and if that continues i think that will be a positive but just more broadly for the market we're just seeing this same pattern that's been in place for for some time. You're seeing sell-offs followed by rallies. We're recording this on Friday morning, uh, so the the, mm-hmm. the market hasn't opened yet, but it's due to correct about thirty points today. I think the futures are showing. So we're going to get a little bit more weakness, and it's just this long, drawn out period of of not much happening uh, mm-hmm. on the um, on the headline index front which can be quite frustrating uh but underlying that as we've talked about in in previous episodes uh you know there's a lot of stuff happening under the surface with individual mm-hmm. stocks especially over reporting season and we mentioned that in last week's podcast the quality stocks have done mm-hmm. really well and in getting into expensive territory whereas the ones that have disappointed uh being sold off heavily and that's uncovering uh, a bit of value
1: yeah definitely i think um while the the stock index itself has been pretty flat there's been some pretty wild stock moves in individual stocks. I think um, Appen was probably one of the biggest ones that it fell about 32 percent on the day of its release. Um, Yep. The the AI boom clearly didn't arrive for it. And the soft guidance suggested that it wasn't really coming anytime soon. So that was disappointing. But I think um, something that you said was um, and I think we've mentioned this maybe a a month or two months ago, which was that Uh, a lot of, I think, maybe investors are happy to hear that inflation is coming down, but they sort of stop there instead sort of sort of realizing that <clears throat> the reason inflation is coming down may be a lot more, I guess, negative than they realize. Uh, if yeah. inflation is falling because consumers don't have enough discretionary funds to spend on anything, that's quite bad for, for earnings and that's not good for the stock market. So yes, Absolutely. it may be it's great for central banks that they're maybe getting on top of inflation, but if they get it on top of inflation by restricting the economy, that's not really good for, for stocks.
0: Exactly. And it
1: depends how much is priced in.
0: And we saw yeah. over the course of the earnings season uh, consensus estimates have come down mm-hmm. to the point where I think numbers for FY24 on average are now five or 6% below FY23. So we are seeing, that priced in a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but it all comes down to the individual individual stocks. And we are seeing lots of um, movement between, as I said, and we talked about this all of last week, quality stocks yeah. are now getting to the point where they're quite expensive and the lack of quality. Uh, in many cases, that's deserved, but I think there's a lot of probably good stocks being put in the... The penalty bin uh, mm-hmm. that may not necessarily deserve it, and uh, one of the things I always talk to my subscribers about is, if you want to buy a cheap stock, you're not going to get into a a, a rosy scenario. You're buying into <laughs> a you're buying into uncertainty, and uncertainty yeah. is what produces the value. So if you want uh, certainty in your investing portfolio, you're going to have to pay up for it, and that can work well for mm-hmm. for some time. But if any disappointment to the growth or anything like that comes through then those those stocks will be punished as well so it's and and that's why I like to I like to look around for uncertainty Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes you can be underwater for a little while when you first buy into a a situation where there is a lot of uncertainty because Mm -hmm. that scenario can continue for months longer Mm -hmm. so you might have to put up with that uncertainty that nervousness and that feeling that you've made a mistake and that you've you've gone into early all those things are part of the mental game. Uh, of investing. It's like, you know, yeah. um, hitting double faults, hitting <laughs> yep. into the net, playing along, all those sorts of annoying things. And you've just got to uh you know, I guess do your homework, make sure that you're looking at the numbers, making sure that uh, what you have paid is a is a reasonable price mm. uh and the intrinsic value is obviously your estimate of value is obviously higher than where the where the market is. And if you can build in those margins of safety uh, it gives you a little bit of comfort to to get through those periods where the market's disagreeing with you.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe an example of that sort of uncertainty and then a turnaround, I think, is EML payments. I think it's gone, it's done really well over the last fifty-two weeks. I'd say after getting belted because of some some dodgy dealings with its subsidiary, I think in Europe. And I think now sort of the market is sort of realizing that at its core, it's a, it's a solid business. And I think now it's sort of moving away from the more dubious subsidiaries. And I think now it's also got some, I think maybe it's a takeover target as well. So it's, it's done really well, but there was a period where no one wanted to touch it and now it's, yeah, it's soaring. So and they're, they're the really hard ones to work out, right? Because yeah. if, if companies have
0: got into problems because of bad management decisions yeah. Then it makes it difficult to buy into that management who have made those bad decisions. So their underlying business might be good, mm. but if you're a bad manager, you can uh, you can destroy value in a good underlying business. So they're the really tricky ones. But it also uh, it also goes to show that sometimes the way that share registers uh, exist in businesses is quite interesting because there can be a whole bunch of shareholders that are in a in a company because it's going up in in. Price and they don't really care about the value. They might like the story, the st- it might be a popular yeah. stock. So you've got all these short term investors in, when that turns south, they didn't care about value on the way up and they don't care about value on the way down. So they might just get out and it takes sometimes a long time based on the liquidity of a stock for all those shareholders to exit. And, and that can keep pressure on a stock price for a long time. And then you get to a point where uh, I guess in technical terms, it's called accumulation. Then, then there's a new bunch of investors that come in because yeah. they see the value and they're accumulating the stock. And that creates a base in the share price. And then they're set and they're, they're holding the stock. So it takes a new bunch of investors to come in on potentially new and positive news mm. that comes in and pushes that share price higher because those uh, people that have come in and accumulated the stock, they're not selling until it gets... Mm gets a fair bit higher so the the other psychological aspect is trying to understand who is in the stock and why they're getting out and maybe they've bought up here and then mental state is is quite damaged because the share Mm. price is down here and they just want to get out at any price and and there that's the reason why i I, you know really uh, value technical analysis is because it actually gives you a bit of an illustration as to how that Mm. that process is playing out
1: yeah and maybe that happened to to quite a few uh, local Aussie stocks Aussie lithium stocks where i think a lot of people got in at the high and then the lithium stocks went nowhere and then declined and then people just tried to run for the exits at any price really and a lot Absolutely. of stocks and are, when uh, and a- when
0: those stocks trend down and then there's a and then there's a short term rally mm-hmm. people just see that as an opportunity to get out at a better price yep. you know I, I wanted to get out i'm just going to get out now and yep. and that, that's why you can see those trends down up down mm. up down and it just takes a while to to really sort of get that feel for when that process might have played out and combining the fundamentals with the technicals is a good way to to help you do that but you know i've been doing it for 20 years and uh, i still get it wrong <laughs>
1: <laughs> well like we said in the last episode it's okay to be wrong, but not to stay wrong so you <laughs> check that episode out but i think yeah. you sort of mentioned quality companies and maybe uh the fact that at these uncertain times people do pay a certainty premium so maybe we could look at two Two quite uh, big, well solid run companies in Australia, Harvey Norman and uh, Brambles. Uh, I think Harvey Norman came, released its um, full year results. And as expected, obviously revenue growth wasn't as strong. I think the most interesting thing, which sort of ties into our discussion about the, um, the strength of the, Aussie consumer, Harvey Norman gave a retail trading update for the month of July and compared that to the month of July last year. And for the Australian franchisees, uh, sales are down 12%, and I think in Northern Ireland, sales are down 20%, and in all of their other segments like New Zealand and the Croatian stuff, they're also down. The only one that showed any growth was in Malaysia, and that was 0.6%, which is negligible. So yep. clearly, uh, Harvey Norman is definitely suggesting that the Aussie consumers is curbing its spending, yep. and that's not really great news.
0: It's not, but it's not necessarily unexpected news yeah. either. And I think that's one of the um, the, the things that you know, people always need to keep in mind is, mm-hmm. uh, was the news factored in previously? And I've just brought yeah. a chart up here of Harvey Norman to, to show this and Obviously, this is when things were getting very negative uh, in the market a couple of months ago. There was a lot of concern about the health of the consumer. Uh, Harvey Norman's share price broke uh, below this sort of long-term support. So from a technical perspective, that's a really negative mm-hmm. sign. But it quickly rallied back up above above there. So that was a, a, a almost like a false, false break uh, that, that shook a lot of the uh, uh, shareholders or investors out of there. So the numbers that have come through were actually a little bit better than expected for mm-hmm. FY23. I think the the market expected $0.40 cents, uh, earnings per share. Harvey Norman reported $0.43. Cents. Uh, but for FY24, the expectation is that uh, earnings will fall 30%. So there's not a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not much positive expectation priced in. And when the numbers came out yesterday, clearly that wasn't priced in because we've had a nice nice rally there. Now, as to whether you'd buy Harvey Norman here my my sort of preference would be you know I just think there's better opportunities yep. out there. and this is a really good example of I think where the market's at at the moment. so and especially if you're uh, one of your strategies is to try to combine uh, the message of the technicals with the the message coming from the fundamentals. So when Harvey Norman broke down broke down here from a technical perspective, it doesn't. It doesn't look good at all. But from a fundamental perspective, I mean, all around this area, Harvey Norman was looking reasonably decent value. I mean, the yields were, were quite strong. You might not necessarily be getting a lot of growth, but you're going to get some income. And if you can buy it at below intrinsic value, you know that's probably not a bad, not a bad play. But the technicals were telling you that's probably not the right thing to do. So now, if I put the numbers into the model, and you know we've we've discussed this model on previous episodes, and you and I both did it independently, and we both came up with a uh, intrinsic value of around about four dollars twenty using a, an eight uh, percent discount rate. So it's it's a little bit below there at the yep. moment. Would I be buying it? It's probably not enough margin of safety, and especially given there is just a lot of uncertainty. And even though a thirty percent decline in earnings expectations is is cons, uh, considerable mm-hmm. you know we are coming off uh very elevated rates of spending for uh household um, yep. consumer just all sorts of consumer goods so um you know i probably wouldn't have enough confidence in that in those numbers and in the forecast and in the business uh, itself and there's you know various question marks over harvey norman's um business, I know that a lot of analysts are are not fans of how they, um, you know, how they do their accounting and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And not to, you know, don't mean to cast dispersions, but I know it's not, uh, it's quite a polarizing company in the analyst community. So I just wouldn't say it's got enough of a margin of safety uh, for me to invest in. And if I look at this overall trend, uh, you know, I think at best, it sort of probably goes up to these These highs and maybe turns back down again and and just sort of trend sideways for some time um i don't know what your thoughts
1: are on it i think it will also probably most likely trend sideways from here because i think um i think it's just profitability is normalizing rather than improving i think it had a great few years that i don't think will be repeated anytime soon um and i think i think its average equity in full year 23 was about 4.38 billion and on its full year that income that's a return on equity of about 12.5 percent and i think during the accounts harvey norman constantly stressed that hey don't look at last year compare us to full year 19 because that's clearly was the favorable contrast but if you look yep. at the return on equity in full year 19 it was 13 so profitability is clearly the same yeah re- yep. re- reverting to the mean so i yeah. think it's yep. probably fairly priced and it's probably not going to go any higher from here Yep. but um you also did a valuation of brambles and I think this is also a really solid company delivered a pretty solid result um, sales revenue on a constant currency basis rose 14% underlying profit also rose about 19% but I think um, management did say that in the second half of last financial year as anticipated there was evidence of destocking across manufacturers and retailers so, I yep. think Bramble sort of supplies pallets for all of the logistics and it did see that its core customer base was sort of curbing that that spending back. Yeah, it's all about the movement of goods, right? Um, yep.
0: But it, it, the, the result was reasonably good. I think they demonstrated uh, pricing power, which just goes to show the, yep. the quality of the business. Um, so the pricing power offset some of that that weakness mm-hmm. in volumes. Um, but as you can see, uh, the share price here is done really well uh mm-hmm. over the past uh 12 months since it's bottomed out there at the end of um, end of 2022 so it's really really nice um trend upward trend there clearly the result was better than expected um it saw the share price surge to to new highs uh if you look at brambles fy24 numbers they're on 18.2 times fy24 three mm-hmm. percent yield so the yield's not too much but that's because they reinvest nearly half of their profits back into the business. So there's obviously the growth angle to it. But looking at those uh, numbers and the uh, consensus for FY24, uh, I get a valuation of around about $13.30 on the stock. So there is a bit of a, uh, I guess, quality premium priced in, which is probably fair enough. Uh, and if you've owned owned this stock for some time you probably want to keep holding it to see yep. uh, where that trend takes you but in terms of a new position uh, it's probably not something i'd be uh, i'd be too keen on
1: yeah i think it's sort of uh this this idea of a quality premium or a certainty premium i think it's definitely an interesting a- idea that has legs i think a few weeks ago i did um i ran some valuations based on your Uh, return on equity valuation model on the top three stocks in ASX, which is BHP, CSL, and um, CBA. And all three of them were quite, not quite overvalued, but they were definitely overvalued by 10% or so. So there's definitely in the top end of town a premium that investors are willing to pay because they're probably just happy for, for the certainty.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I think that's just an, another indication of this idea that capital is flowing up into yep. the the largest companies where there is earning certainty, and yep. uh, it's just another reflection of the psychology of the market at the moment. And yep. you are seeing a lot of nervousness out there, even though the the index itself is not necessarily showing anything; it's just a sideways moving yep. market. But I think that's again a reflection of that money moving into the into the large caps, which is effectively holding up. Mm-hmm. uh holding up the the indices whereas if you look down in the small caps and the world of micro caps uh there's a lot of lot of carnage uh down there in the smaller smaller end of the market
1: yeah well uh, speaking of capital and capital flows i think now we'll turn to a very and capital interesting- destruction <laughs> and capital destruction yeah <laughs> which is all about the the energy transition i think you just recently released a very very nice report on this issue and uh, so why don't you just really take it away
0: yeah i I thought it's worth mentioning and and, you know we won't sort of dwell on it for too long here but um, for those who have who watched the various episodes of this this podcast we have um, had a series of bonus issues called net zero insanity over the past few months and i've been interviewing a range of people uh, to try to get a different take on on uh, what this energy transition is why it's happening what it's Mm -hmm. going to cost us and and that stems from my long-held view that this will be a lot more expensive yep. than what we're being told. Uh, it's going to be take a lot longer than what we've been told, and uh, it might not actually work. And part of the, um, part of the idea behind that is that, um, how best to put this, we are transitioning for the first time in history to a... a a less efficient form of energy production. So the report that I wrote for subscribers a couple of weeks ago or last week, I think it was sort of detailed the history Mm -hmm. of our first energy transition. And we went from feudal and agrarian societies burning wood. uh, We moved to coal and the technological change that came out of uh, innovations in the coal mining industry kicked off the industrial revolution, which you know is still considered like this massive change in the way that we lived and massive change in wealth and prosperity that we as humans uh, have enjoyed over the past 200 years. And uh, one of the key ideas behind that is we went from wood to coal to oil, which are all more energy dense forms of uh, forms of energy. And we are now going reversing that, going to wind and solar. Uh, which are less dense forms of energy and it's going to cost us more and it's going to um, uh, lower our standard mm-hmm. of living because we need to invest more of our resources yep. in producing our energy and to me it's just insane and I think we have been told uh, over and over that you know this transition must happen because we have a climate emergency and there's more uh, awareness being raised and more scientists put it, putting up their hands saying, I'm not sure about this climate emergency, is it really? Or is that just what we're being told in order to um, to justify this expensive uh, um, transition? Speaking of expensive, we just found out yesterday that Snowy Hydro is now going to cost $12 billion, not $2 billion. Now, that is probably not necessarily new, new news. Uh, we've known about the blowouts in Snowy Hydro for a while, but it just goes to show those costs are increasing, that doesn't include the transmission that needs to be built to connect snowy hydro to all the renewable energy areas that are being built to, to obviously uh, pump the water back uphill. Uh, and AMIO came out yesterday with a dire warnings about uh, how we're we going to get through a traditionally hot summer, which no doubt we'll hear about the hot summer as being a result of climate change uh, coming up because we are going into an El Nino pattern, which is a different weather pattern that we've had for the past few years. Uh, So um, the energy market regulator is now talking about, or sorry, the operator is now talking about uh, the the risk of blackouts, especially in South Australia and Victoria. And South Australia, of course, is the poster state for renewable energy. (laughs) Um, And partly... The reason is because our coal-fired power plants are getting so old and we haven't invested in new uh, capacity for so long that we're getting to a point where the unreliability in the coal-fired um, fleet is a risk because we're just not creating the, the new yeah. uh, capacity to to, uh, to compensate for that. Um, but before I go on, I just want to uh, highlight something that I wrote um in, in this report, just to sort of give people a sense of why this is so important. So mm. when I spoke about the uh, transition from wood to coal, um, Britain was the first country to do it in that it had plentiful reserves of coal and it enabled it to do it and it enabled it to be the first to benefit from it. And I wrote that Britain was the first nation to shift to a more energy-dense form of fuel didn't reap the benefits of that shift immediately, but over time, the investment paid off massively. It became a modern superpower on the back of cheap, efficient, and abundant energy. America's subsequent rise to global superpower occurred on the back of the transition to oil, a more energy-dense fuel than coal. Moreover, it was abundant and cheap to extract. The US also benefited from vast reserves of natural gas, which was the next energy source to be exploited after oil. So, if you look at uh, the history of, I guess, economic dominance that we've uh, been used to uh, in the in the West, especially, it largely comes down to our ability to harness those energy reserves and and uh, produce enough that goes on to save us time to come up with other innovations and create higher standards standards of living. Now, the the idea behind that is a is a concept. Uh, called Energy Return on Energy Invested. And the idea there is that you need to have a, a decent level of energy return on energy invested in order to sustain a, uh, a modern civilization. Yep. Now, this concept, uh, which we'll just call EROI, uh, this concept w- uh, was uh, introduced by an ecologist called Charles Hall. So I'll just read a little quote from the report because I think this is really important, uh, you know, for Australians to understand as we're sort of hearing about the, the transition that we're going through, how much it's going to cost us, but more importantly, what that will mean—not necessarily next year or the next five years, but you know, in the next decade, in the decades to come, and for our kids and grandkids, and and how they what they're going to inherit from the decisions we're making now. So says, ecologist Charles Hall invented the concept of energy return on energy invested. He believes the metric is is crucial because it helps us to see which energy sources are high quality and which ones are not. Using this concept in a 2013 interview, Hall explained how the moves to renewables might not be able to sustain our civilization. This is a quote from Hall. We looked at the minimum EROI you need to drive a truck and you need at least three to one at the wellhead. Now, what that means, just to interject there, is that in order to uh, justify bringing a truck into the the oil field and and trucking it out, you need an energy return on energy invested of three to one to, to, to even get that done. And he says, now, if you want to put anything in the truck, like grain, you need to have an energy return on energy invested of five to one, and that includes the depreciation for the truck. But if you want to include depreciation for the truck driver, and the oil worker and the farmer, then you've got to uh, then you've got to support the families, and then you need an EROI of seven to one, and if you want education, you need eight or nine to one, and if you want healthcare, you need ten to one or eleven to one. Civilization requires a substantial energy return on investment. You can't do it on some kind of crummy fuel like corn-based ethanol, which has an EROI of around one to one. A big problem we have facing the alternatives. Is that they're all so low EROI? We'd all like to go toward renewable fuels, but it's not going to be easy at all, and it may be impossible. We may not be able to sustain our civilization on these alternative fuels. So he was saying that back in 2013, before it really became a mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a hot political issue, which it is, which it is now. So just on that, uh, there's a uh, there's an interesting chart that came out that shows the various Uh, the various uh, fuel sources. Now, I'm not sure if that has that come up for you. Can you see that chart? So solar biomass, which is effectively, you know, things like burning wood and um, probably cow dung and stuff like that. Wind, solar, thermal, they are all the lowest form of energy return on energy invested. And this is from a 2018 study I think it was, Um, and when we're talking about, just to explain what the chart means, unbuffered versus buffered, buffered is even lower because it takes into account the intermittency Mm -hmm. of these energy sources. So the return on energy investment that you're getting from these, and and look, they may have been updated from those original studies and they may be a little bit higher, but you're not getting enough return on energy invested in order to sustain a modern civilization that we are used to. And this is why the concern is that our living standards are under major threat. Whereas if you look at traditional fossil fuels, natural gas and coal, hydro is obviously up here, but we can't build a hydro dam everywhere. They are a lot higher and they are able to sustain our standard of living. Whereas if we look at nuclear, this is a modeled on a nuclear power plant in Germany. Uh, That is the highest energy return on energy invested that we have so it goes. It just goes to show the insanity of the debate at the moment is that we're not even entertaining nuclear in Australia mm-hmm. because Chris Bowen says the costs, uh, 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 you know, don't make it worthwhile. And I'm actually interviewing uh, someone which we'll have on this podcast in the next few weeks that has dug into the Gen cost modelling of uh, nuclear versus renewables and found some major flaws in it. So I'll be uh, I'll be getting that interview to you soon hopefully and just to finish off on the on the topic this just goes to show this is primary uh, global primary energy consumption by source and that's not just electricity this is energy consumption um, so we've got coal oil and gas taking up a huge portion of our energy needs whereas wind solar hydropower other renewables and uh, things like that still a tiny amount there is no way there is absolutely no chance that in the next 20 years or 30 years by 2050 mm-hmm. we are going to get to a point where all these account for all these It's just not going to happen and it just um, and I think you know part of what uh, I'm trying to do on this sort of bonus series is make this discussion not a political discussion mm-hmm. it's an economic discussion about are we doing the right thing? Uh, for this in in this country for our future generations and we are absolutely not it's uh it's going to create you know some major issues we're already plowing billions into it and it's just that so many people stand to benefit from it Mm -hmm. and couldn't really care less about uh the future because they're going to make a lot of money in the next few years by um you know getting on this renewables Mm -hmm. gravy train and probably just the final thing i'll say on it as a i guess as an anecdote about Uh, the uh, efficacy of this or not, you probably saw yesterday in uh, the Fortescue Metals update, um, yet another executive has left the building. And to me, that just really suggests that there's some really loose thinking going on there about this energy transition. And maybe Andrew Forrest has completely drunk the Kool-Aid on it. Um, And the executives that are coming in there are saying... Seriously,' I'm not, I'm not hanging around for this. this is not uh, in my best long-term interest. And you know money talks in many different ways, but money also talks because of reputational risk and I think a lot of people are questioning the uh, the ability of Fortescue A to continue making good money because they're transitioning from a pr- very profitable iron ore company to some form of future, energy hydrogen business and Forrest himself has said he's r- willing to accept lower returns mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the shareholders will be happy with that but um uh, yeah it, it, it just to me it just suggests this whole uh debate is is really sort of heating up at the moment uh, to pardon the pun I didn't even mean to <laughs> use that but um the whole debate's just getting getting crazy and more and more people are coming to realize that what we're being told by our politicians and our regulators and and uh, the, the bureaucrats that are pumping out all this information is actually not necessarily true. And uh, the more people that question it, the more people that understand it, I think the better off our, our long term uh, long term future will be.
1: Yeah, and I think given uh, the the Reserve Bank, the incoming new governor Michelle Bullock, she she gave a speech I think earlier this week uh, titled "Climate Change and Central Banks." And she was sort of outlining that there's the physical risks from climate change itself and also the transition risks, which I think is what you're sort of talking about, which is the world's reaction to climate change and sort of what the investments that the world makes. And she did say that, um, for example, this is her quote, depending on how this transition plays out, if the net effect is to temporarily lower aggregate supply, Uh, And she was talking about lowering the aggregate supply in terms of um, phasing out carbon intensive production. Then she said this would put upward pressure on inflation. And then she also said that there is um, much uncertainty about how we will um, phase out our coal-fired power plants. And she said coal-fired power plants are scheduled to be shut down over the next three decades. This could put upward pressure on energy prices if coal plant closures are not matched by renewable supply and storage. There is much uncertainty here.
0: Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the uh, revelation. <laughs> it's hardly hardly surprising. We're trying to electrify our economy. Yeah. We're trying to shut down our baseload power and replace it with remue- renewables that are taking a long time to be built, are le- taking a long time to be hooked up, and are not going to replace that lost capacity. So we are trying to increase demand and and a shrinking supply at the same mm-hmm. time. What's going to happen to prices? It's going to go up a lot, and that's the problem. You know, we are investing more of our resources in building an inefficient energy capture and transmission system. And if we, uh, you know, had a sensible discussion about nuclear, I think our future would be a lot more uh, secure.
1: Yeah. Well, on that on that happy note, I think we'll um, end the discussion there. But definitely check out. Uh, I think that episode will the bonus episode will come out soon. With your interview actually we've
0: got one coming out we should have yep. one coming out with uh dr ian uh plymer next week uh so i had a really good chat with him about a lot of these issues uh and then that will follow with more in the in the weeks and months ahead
1: Yep. but yeah do let us know what you guys thought of this episode and what your views are on the on the energy transition in the comments below and leave a like subscribe and all of that jazz Beautiful. greg's been nice talking to you and see you next week you too carol and thanks for watching everyone we'll see you again soon see ya Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by liking and subscribing and turn those post notifications so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.